This podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Witt School of Governance. For more information, visit visit their website on www.wits.ac.za/wsg. My name is Karen Abrahams. I'm a senior lecturer at the school, and I'm going to be covering the second webinar in our series entitled "What is Urban Governance." Just before I start, just a reminder that the webinar series is really here to introduce you to the school, our master's offering programs, of which governance is a big part, as well as specializations such as public policy, social policy, peace and security, monitoring and evaluation, and decision-making. And this governance talk that I'm going to do today, in a sense, um, links to main areas of governance, but but more especially to some of our short course offerings, some of the electives, and more particularly our research agenda. So as a postgraduate school, most of what we do is, is supervise students at a master's and PhD level. And that entails finding a supervisor that has particular interests to yours. And so you may find during this webinar series an interesting point of connection between a potential supervisor and yourself to begin to think about your own research. And so in a sense, that's the vantage point I'm taking today. So the question of what is urban governance? Prof Ivo last week in the opening webinar session, talking about what is governance, offered us a necessary and useful framing of the meaning of governance, allowing us to clarify issues and to distinguish concepts related to governance that are sometimes reduced to governance in the public and private sectors. So what we focused on last week was how governance includes the mechanisms, values, and elements of governance, which ultimately steers decision makers toward a stated mandate or strategic vision or purpose. And the measure of governance in that sense is how closely the institution and the institutional mechanisms work together to achieve that institutional goal or mandate. So governance then brings together the governance rules, institutional mechanisms, and mandated purpose of the institution. And that's what Prof. Ivo focused on last week. So I want to build on those kinds of ideas and but take a different angle today. I want to focus on the way that governance is an interdisciplinary concept, meaning that any one theorist or analyst or scholar can consider the debates of governance from different disciplines. And each of these disciplines may offer a different point of departure from which to view and think about governance without being reduced to it. So similarly, different academic disciplines might consider governance from different disciplines. And by disciplines here, we mean academic disciplines. So political science is an academic discipline. Sociology is an academic discipline. Political economy is an academic discipline, right? So each of these disciplines, and many of you you'll recall the discipline that you studied in, 
your undergrad and those foundational concepts relate to the discipline that you're coming from. And so there are these various concepts that are important to those disciplines. Now, I'm going to focus on one of those disciplines later on, which is the one I was schooled in. But I want to just give us a kind of broad overview, right? So it means that these are different points of departure that could provide different lines of inquiry. So, for example, a policy scientist may focus on policies or policy frameworks or policy processes that define the way a particular institution governs a particular social problem or social issue. So, in this sense, a policy lens might focus on, in an urban environment, might focus on urban policy or housing policy or spatial policy. And there are certain key concepts within policy studies that could take a researcher down a particular road. A demographic scientist may focus on the effect of population growth, population densities, and the changing mandate that governments have to deal with and therefore the changing demands on structures of society. An urban economist might focus on the way that local budgets are determined related to conditional grants. And it may be a focus of interest because of financial implications of governing a province or space or a metro or municipality and all of the linkages with infrastructure spend and social outcomes. Finally, a political scientist may look at forms of power and the state architecture which guides or legislates or exercises control over delivery, over budgets, over institutional structures or a certain set of practices. Now, I just give you that broad introduction and framework to say that there is no one singular discipline or framework that can comprehensively or definitively shape or define the concept of governance. Governance is by its nature an interdisciplinary concept. And of course, the same is going to be true for urban governance as I take us through those debates. So what needs to be done now is to name up my own disciplinary perspective, and that's what I'm going to be doing now, I'm an urban geographer by training, and so the perspective that I'm sharing with you today is a perspective from urban studies. And so I want us to consider in this webinar session the way urban governance is framed, the way it's used, and I'll offer us a set of arguments that will allow us to operationalize the concept, particularly if you're thinking about your own research and how to begin analyzing or framing your, your research question. So let's consider a framework now. And I draw this framework from urban studies. As I say, I'm an urban geographer. And it may give us a more nuanced picture of urban governance. Now, of course, let's remind ourselves that this is only but one perspective, one disciplinary perspective. And so there are many in the school that come from different disciplines. 
and some are pure political scientists, some are sociologists. And so we all think through this concept in very different ways. And what I'm sharing with you today is the way that I think through the concept. So there's an urban scholar whose work I tend to use a lot and like. His name is Henri Lefebvre. And he talks about urban issues by talking about something called urban space. And this is the way he conceptualizes it. And if you're some of my students, you probably know this very well by now because I frame lots of the arguments that I use according to Lefebvre's notions of space. Now, I want to give us three ideas that have to do with urban governance. And I'm citing mostly uh, um, the work of Brennan Schmidt. And I can make that reference available at a later stage. And so they talk about three notions of urban space, which is drawn, of course, from Lefebvre, right? So this first dimension has to do with urban space in terms of social practices. Now, all this means is that we think about what's happening in an urban environment by thinking about just processes of urbanization. And those are global processes of urbanization that's happening all across the world. And yes, it's got to do with the very baseline idea that by the year 2050, more than half the world's population will reside in cities. And the idea that cities are beginning to shape the way societies work, and even for people who don't live in cities, the modes of governance within an urban environment, the metropolitan way of governing, the mode of governing urban space, is so widespread that it even shapes the way lives are led and lived in places that are not quite urban, right? So this first notion has to do just with the spatial practices of urbanization, how urban change happens, how urban growth happens, whether people are drawn to cities for whatever reason. So often we look at the fact of urbanization as something that is, is wrong with society. And we try to, to talk about how do we alleviate urbanization or increase you know, people's appetite for staying in rural areas, rather than noticing or recognizing that this is just an urban, it's a global process where people want to live in cities and people are increasingly attracted to cities. And there's greater in-migration even between cities, and you might know this from your own experience or just knowing how people are drawn to larger cities that can offer more economic opportunity, social interaction, better schools, better healthcare, etc. And the more we see this as just a normal social practice, a spatial practice rather, than something that needs to be alleviated, we start seeing it just as part of a dimension of our urban story, the urban narrative. So this first dimension of urban governance has to do with, for example, 
how infrastructure networks become the map onto which the urban form takes place. So urbanization means a number of changes in urban space. And those mean has an impact on budgets, on infrastructure spend and development, and how urban infrastructure either precedes urban change or how urban change demands a different kind of urban infrastructure, right? But inevitably, it's about how these infrastructure networks transport other kinds of social and economic facilities within cities become the map onto which the urban form takes place. And it includes the kinds of practices that changes the urban form. So, for example, the practices of of travel, of commute, of transit. And so you see things like the development of transit-oriented development or these zones of, of spatial development, or you see and hear of things like corridors of freedom, where the transport networks are there to support and also to shape the fact of urbanization and increasing urbanization in whatever particular metro or place we're talking about. So that's the first dimension. We call it spatial practices or the fact of urbanization. The second dimension has to do with regulation. And here it may be more classically related to the policy side of things um, or the mainstream governance idea about around regulation, right? So we may think about regulation in terms of territorial regulation, which means regulation over a particular territory, particular space, right? So think of provincial demarcations or municipal demarcations or district demarcations more recently, but it's about how urban space is regulated. And we can extend that to ideas about legislative governance, linking to what Prof. Ivo was talking about last week, over a particular geographical space. Here the concern and the focus uh, in this dimension would be the regulatory frameworks and the legal mechanisms that frame what happens in that space, what's permitted, what's prohibited, how matters are managed within that space. So, for example, you may be discussing matters like urban land use policies, zoning policies, planning policies, also things like bylaws and other kinds of regulation that come into play. Now, Prof. Ivo made a really important distinction last week, and I want to remind us of that, that sometimes we tend to equate management with governance. In a similar way, sometimes we equate urban management with urban governance, and it's surely a component of it, and in this, in the words that I'm using, it's a dimension of it, but it's not necessarily reduced to it. So 
the management of how urban space can change and the financial implications would form part of this dimension. So urban management is about, for example, initiating and maintaining the institutional and infrastructural systems that allow for smooth functioning of the city, both in a technical and infrastructural way and the smooth running of the city in an administrative sense. And this would include agencies, planning, zoning. It may be about systems being put in place for cleanup of residential neighborhoods or cutting grass or about management of billing and revenue collection of a municipality to ensure smooth functioning or efficient running of an urban space or municipality, right? So urban management is surely part of this kind of dimension of regulation and it makes for effective governance, but it's a component of governance and not necessarily equated with it. The third dimension has to do with, and this is the third dimension that we're talking about from a perspective of urban studies, right, drawn from Lefebvre's idea of urban space, is the way that everyday social practices produce or reproduce the way places are governed. So this simply means that in the second dimension, we have the kind of formal legislative regulatory aspects of governance that includes policy. But there are also everyday forms of practices, social practices, that as urban residents, civil society, school children, everyone that inhabits public space or urban space, the way we practice our social lives, experiences day to day, has a lot to do with the way places are governed. Now, in Lefebvre's notion, these everyday social practices either produce, that means cause, or reproduce, and that means regenerate. It keeps it going. It maintains the way places are governed. And so when we see urban change happening, it's not simply that there's now a policy and then urban change happens. Or there's movement of people into a particular place and urban change happens. It happens as also a result of ordinary people living out urban lives in particular ways. And that has to do with how places are governed or shaped, urban places. And particularly how the urban form takes shape and is also maintained. Now, we'll unpack this as this webinar goes on. For example, these everyday social practices might include the social routines of people in particular areas. And those routines may then set those places apart as distinct places, spaces of either recreation or living or as we'll, as we'll unpack further, it would be invested with meaning 
with social meaning. So urban space is, is invested with, with meaning because of how we use it. And by we, I mean everyone, residents, citizens, non-citizens, uh, children, civil society, etc. right? So it may include the social routines of people in the areas. What would be important here, for example, could be, and you'll know what I'm talking about when I mention this, the kinds of policing practices, and these are everyday social practices, of ordinary people in their street or ward committees. And by policing practices, we mean those WhatsApp groups, um, those citizen awareness resident association groups that tend to police the space in ways that guarantee particular social practices in those spaces or prohibit other kinds of social practices in those spaces. So think for another example about how there's massive amounts of crowdfunding to boom off particular areas that are not gated communities, but to create securitized areas within just normal suburbs. But we can also think about these kinds of everyday social practices about how places and spaces are governed if we think about how there's sometimes unauthorized occupation of land for housing. So it's not just a kind of suburban mentality or for the middle class, right? These ideas of social practices that shape urban space is also related to how how the poor access and access and take ownership of particular spaces that maybe there's formal or legislative prohibitions about, but there's these forms of everyday unauthorized occupation of space or indeed unauthorized connections for electricity provision, right? And so these social practices are distinct from the legislative kind of world of urban governance, and it's also distinct from the kind of fact of urbanization. So these three dimensions of urban space can help us frame by what is meant by urban governance. The first, very much about just ordinary urban processes, global urban processes, and urbanization that's the same across the world. It's the fact of urbanization and the spatial practices of movement of people that's associated with urbanization. The second is the kind of formal regulatory frameworks which legally govern urban space or demarcate particular areas. And the third are the social practices that reinforce or challenge the urban form or reinforce and challenge the regulatory frameworks. Now, we're going to unpack that in the next few minutes. So let's think about these three dimensions as lenses, as conceptual lenses that let us use the concept of urban governance as a conceptual device that we can mobilize in our analysis. And we can use this for academic purposes or for pragmatic actual governance purposes, right? So we're thinking about these three dimensions as lenses. 
I use this metaphor a lot in, um, in my teaching, so my students will be really well aware of this metaphor. And it's to take the idea of lenses slightly forward. It's the idea of the microscope. So to answer the question of how urban governance as a concept or as a lens can be used or mobilized, you know, you have to put the lens in something. If you put it in a microscope, for example. And a microscope, obviously, you know, is a device which, with which we can view something closely using one or all kinds of lenses. And you'd view this thing under the microscope. So the first idea has to do with what's the thing under the microscope? What's the thing we're looking at? What's the specimen we're looking at? And so urban governance as a framework or as a set of lenses allows us to have a conceptual understanding of something. But when we apply it, we need to look at something to be able to explain how these concepts play out. So that's the first set. That's the first idea. Sorry, it's about what's under the microscope. The second idea is which lens are we using? And we can use all or any. And it depends, A, from which discipline you come in or what's the purpose of your analysis. If we're thinking about urban governance as just a social process, then you might want to use the first lens. And that's a more kind of academic discussion about how the nature of the way the world is changing. And so that first lens might be used just to tell the story or the narrative about how the world is changing. The second lens when we look at the regulatory framework, might be used to tell the story about how state processes play out, what the kind of regulatory frameworks are, and we'll unpack them just now. The third, you could take the third or you could take all three, and the third could be an analysis by, say, a sociologist or a geographer like myself that's really interested in the kind of social processes that govern space and so the lens you're using depends on the purpose that you want to achieve. I'm only going to focus on two of the lenses here and I'll leave the third to you, right? So we unpack the first part of the metaphor. What we analyze about governance depends very much on what's under the microscope. In other words, governance can be directed at a number of subjects, direct to a number of subjects. In other words, there can be a number of things or subjects or specimens on the slide that we're looking at in that kind of way, right? And then we can use different sets of lenses. The urban processes at play, the modes of regulatory governance, the social practices that reinforce or challenge either the urban processes or the re regulatory governance. And of course, your homework after this and, you know, can keep you up at night or we can save it for the Q&A session is about analyzing what all this means. So it's not just the act of looking through the microscope and describing. So description and just seeing what's there or uncovering what's there is one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is talking about what this means, right? And, of course, that's work for another day where we take particular case studies or particular narratives that illustrate how we can mobilize these urban governance concepts in particular ways, right? I'll just give us two examples right here. So 
in terms of the specimen that's on the table, right? We may think about governance of a resource like water governance. And Prof. Mike Miller will know much more than I about this, but it's about how a particular resource, the use of a particular resource, the management of that resource, the infrastructure around that resource is governed. Or what may be on our specimen slide might be something like a service, like waste services. We might ask such questions using the first lens about the urban form, requiring us knowing about the technical aspects of provisioning, the infrastructural aspects of how this is mapped across space, how it's reticulated, how it's technically managed from a kind of infrastructure perspective. We may think about using a second lens, the institutional arrangements governing that particular system, who the main governing agents are, how governance happens, how governance of this resource happens. So it's not how in the technical sense, like the pipes and the flows of water, etc., but it's about the mechanisms of governance here. What are the policy frameworks governing these practices? What are the accountability mechanisms and how are these matters managed? Using the third lens, we may think about the social practices of water or waste provisioning across the city. We may think, especially during this time of COVID and big water tankers, etc., we may think of how water brokers play a role in the provision of water services to informal settlements, for example, or the role of informal waste pickers within the supply chain of recycled material. So using that one issue as a specimen, we can think about it through these three different lenses. So let's put another subject under the microscope. And this is something that I particularly do a fair amount of research on and I'm quite interested in. If we put a thing like urban public space, public space under the microscope, such questions might emerge as the first lens, the urban form that necessitates, that requires such urban public space, or what geographical elements come into play in the creation of these spaces. So that's just the fact of urbanization. In the second lens, we may consider which authorities, which bodies or institutions authorize the use of particular spaces in particular ways, which structures govern its use, which bylaws are determined and managed by which agencies, and how is that managed, right? So that's using the second lens around public space. And the third lens, and that's the one that I do some research about, is around the, the way social practices or ordinary everyday practices of users or residents reinforce or challenge the way that the physical structures of public space, how they are used, circumvented, how they are controlled in different social forms, and how their use is governed by everyday social practices of other actors or agents. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail about that, right? The exercise about, you know, putting the specimen under the microscope, under these three lenses, can be repeated, right? 
if we place different subjects under the microscope within a kind of fairly formulaic framework of urban governance. And by saying it's fairly formulaic, it's not to say that it's 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 boring or less accessible. That's a you know perfectly legitimate analytical framework to be using. But in this last part of the webinar today, I want to offer us a last provocation. And of course, it's there because you know this wouldn't be an academic webinar at the School of Governance, and I wouldn't be myself if I didn't leave you with this kind of provocation about what urban governance means. Of course, we know that governance has something to do with power. But let's for the minute remember our triadic framework and add squarely in the middle the concept of power and how power is exercised. Now, you are surely already making the connection between the ways power and authority plays out in particularly the second and third dimensions, um, and that's regulation and social practices. And I want to bring this webinar to a close and talk about those two things. So the first provocation I want to offer you is how the vested authority in the state, right, the state being the state and having that vested authority in it, and the mandate to regulate spatial change or infrastructure spend or particular ways, um, how that vested authority determines legal oversight and, and how those things together play out in actual urban space. Right? Now, I don't want to say so much about that because it's kind of a straightforward analysis, but it's the idea of how for example, a JMPD has vested authority over a particular designated metropolitan area and over the metropolitan roads that run through those areas and over the driving behavior of its residents or people, the users of that space. But it's also about the form of, so it's not just the fact of regulatory authority, it's also about what that power connotes or means, right? And so we can, you know, spend a whole other seminar talking about that. And at the end of this uh, session, I'll, I'll ask you to consider what that means in this era of managing and regulating behavior in, this, in the state of disaster in, during COVID, right, or lockdown periods. So you're really making those kinds of connections, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Power can also be exercised in other non-formal ways, however, that are not necessarily related to a clear policy direction about, about how particular agents of the state might exercise their power. Right? And power can also be exercised in these other non-formal ways related to that third aspect or third dimension of urban governance, that's the social practices which reinforce or challenge the spatial form. Now, these everyday social practices, I've mentioned some of them before, but they may take the form of neighborhoods or communities that can reinforce, for example, the way public space is to be used, who uses it, 
how they use it, when they use it, why they use it. It's a form of power. It's a form of non-formal, non-regulatory power that's exercised over the use of space. Right? It can also form part of governing through really everyday practices about who is included and who is not included, which regulatory frameworks are enforced or which ones are indeed subverted. It can include very normalized ways of exerting power through social mechanisms like social surveillance, patrols, those kinds of mechanisms. Now, the last provocation I want to leave us with, um, and in my view, it's critical to urban governance, is not just that various services or subjects or social issues can be placed under the microscope. And it's not just that we can include power or concepts of power within our notion of how we govern. The last provocation I want to offer us is the thing that we can put under the microscope can be actually the state itself. The state's own practices, its own mechanisms of power can be the specimen or the subject within an urban governance framework that we put under the microscope. So that it's not just service delivery or some kind of social issue or some kind of social good, but it is in fact the state itself that we can put under the microscope. So scholars like Stone and Beni Pafu argue it's not just power over a territory. It's not just the state's power over a metro or municipality. Or it's not just the state's power through an institution over water governance or a provision of a particular service or process. But rather the question here is about the power to, power to do something. And the key question here is the power to exercise domination in such a way that legitimizes its state control. Ashulim um, Bembe talks about this as the authorizing authority of the state that legitimizes states, the state's power, right? So it's the power to exercise domination in such a way that it legitimates the kind of state control that may be used and it may legitimize the way and I quote here from Benik Bafu, it legitimizes the way, quote, power travels, is incorporated, naturalized, and diffused in particular sites, close quote. Now, I'll leave this for the Q&A and for your homework and to keep you up at night, but you may wish to draw connections between this and illustrate the set of this last set of ideas in the way, for example, evictions are carried out during this time. Or the way that state policing of cigarette usage happens during this time. Or the way that we can see the increased militarization of metropolitan or security protocol officers and the institution and the infrastructure during the state of disaster in COVID, right? And 
there it's about putting the state under the microscope to look, to interrogate the power of the state to exercise its authority in these particular ways, to exercise and maintain its control and legitimacy around a particular issue and to maintain its authority over a particular urban space. So we want to conclude there and with that provocation and leave it open for Q&A and hopefully a fruitful discussion after this. So let's conclude and, and wrap up. Urban governance is made up of different components which cumulatively define it. We noted first that governance is an interdisciplinary concept that can be discussed from different perspectives. And from an urban studies perspective, which is my own, urban governance can be described or defined in a kind of triadic notion with these concepts drawn from three, three different lenses. Different subject matter can be placed under the proverbial microscope to analyze urban governance. And lastly, that urban governance may in fact require us to actually include an interrogation of the state apparatus itself, state power, the policies, processes, formal and informal forms of exercising state authority in urban space. And together that gives us a good sense about what urban governance is. Thank you. So I'm gonna switch over to Q&A. Kamanda, you wanna add anything? There's some matters in the chat. Yeah, so I just wanted to mention there is a question on the chat. Maybe start with the okay. Q and A, and then we'll okay. go to the chat. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read them out. So just give me a five. Go grab your coffee next to you while I read these. I think the Q and A is open for everyone, so everyone can read it. So you want me to answer some of the Q and A ones, or must I look at the the chat sessions first, Kamantha? You can, you can start with the Q&A, that's fine. Okay. Okay, so some of those are bigger questions and some of those are more specific questions. I'm not going to take them all one by one because of time constraints, but I, I think we'll, we can go slightly over. The relationship between globalization and urban governance in developing nations. I think, you know, there are agencies that are international agencies that are really concerned with this, this question because it's the idea that because of globalization, there's also a component that has to do with migration, that's international migration. And there's a component of, that this is taking a political economy perspective that others of my colleagues surely in the, in the room can answer better than I, but it's about how big capital gets to define or shape urban processes in particular urban places. So if you just think about the provision of housing and even though it's mandated by the state or subsidized by the state, it very much is related to the way development capital is mobilized in ways that shape the urban form. And so just how ethical those kinds of things are and how we govern ethically in the midst of such a pragmatic requirement of big business coming to support the housing mandate, for example, or banks coming to provide gap market housing. Just how ethical our decision-making is there, just 
what the nature of the social compact between these agencies and the state is, is the question of urban governance. And that's putting the state under the microscope and putting the processes of the state under the microscope there. Is urban change possible to end exclusion of the poor and those uh, residing in informal settlements? You know, there are great debates within urban studies about this matter. In fact, one of our colleagues at Architecture at Cubes has written a fair amount of how the state has this kind of dual approach, a kind of very developmental approach in allowing for different urban forms that would allow the urban poor to live in different ways and not necessarily in informal settlements. So there's this kind of developmental policy notion, but at the same time, Huchumaiza argues that there's a very direct effect that the regulatory control has. So on the one hand, we have a policy framework that's very developmental and and, and normative and generous. And then at the other hand, we have a control mechanism of the state, the same state, that tries to enforce direct modes of eradicating informal settlements. And so I don't think there's an easy answer to that about exclusion of the poor. Some theorists may even argue provocatively that part of the state apparatus is to manage the exclusion of the poor rather than to end the exclusion of the poor. Anonymous, your point about, for example, the corridors of freedom and for that large infrastructure kind of spend, um, thinking about that project as a political project and and how it shouldn't or shouldn't necessarily be stopped simply because it was seen as an ANC thing and now under a, a, a DA government those kinds of infrastructure planning, infrastructure and spatial development planning kind of gets shelved. And your question is about the abuse of power and how central it is to places that are being governed or ungoverned. And absolutely, you know, Prof. Ivo talked about last week about how politics is absolutely central to this whole debate. And that's when we put the state, and the state is not a monolithic entity. Right? It's about who governs that particular uh, space. And, and urban governance is so interesting because we can think about it parceled out like that in kind of uh, municipalities that are governed by different political parties. And there you see much more, much more starkly, the idea that particular places are governed in particular ways. And then because of the political mandates, are, you know, certain processes are undone and so it may lead to your definition of being not governed. Ruth, thanks for your question about the response the government gives to the challenge of informal settlements in the land question. I think Prof. Ivo talked a bit about, or a lot about the kind of the politics of it. And so I don't necessarily want to get in, into that. But I think the urban governance response to informal settlements tells a lot about speaks a lot about the nature of the state apparatus. So in the same way as I answer that first question, is it there to eradicate informal settlements, to upgrade informal settlements? The rhetoric of the state or the development language of the state says a lot about its commitment to 
addressing a particular issue. And so in some ways, it's been very direct and often violent. In other ways, it's been quite managerial in terms of maintaining that status quo. And we might, you know, interrogate that a little bit more. But I think, you know, it's a, it's a question, I think, for another day. And I, I don't think I quite have the answer to that. How do I define urban good governance? Sure, I, I don't. <laughs> um, but thank you for that question. But I think maybe this is homework for yourself because Prof. Ivor talked last week about the components of governance that's related to issues of governance and accountability and transparency in the more kind of king four version of it. And what that means how that plays out in scale at a national level, supranational level, or how it plays out at a local level can be something that you might consider. But I think it's a matter for, for, for application, just applying those ideas to urban space within the kind of frameworks that we've used. Let's see. Melile, I'm looking at the chats now, colleagues, so you might want to follow me there. I'm looking at the first one. This is a comment, so I thank you for that. I appreciate a comment as well. Thank you. Urban governance to me invokes notions of sustainability, equity, transparency, accountability. Oh, good. You answered Nozi's question there. Thank you. Civic engagement, right to the city, spatial justice, bottom-up democracy, and they're all interdependent. Secondly, there's an assertion that normal urban functioning favors the rich and more politically connected, uh, rich and more powerful, and the poor, at least relatively Poorer, assumably less connected. Thus, the urban dividend reminds a pipe dream for the majority, poor and marginalized, as normal urban functioning militates against the poor. Any comment on the foregoing? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, scholars such as Vishwa Satka and other urban scholars that take this view actually say that, you know, our state apparatus is geared towards management of the poor but inclusion of the middle class. And so it's an argument worth having. I don't, I think it's a discussion for another day, but I think you raise a really important set of points there. Thank you. Sorry about the functioning for Malori. Yeah, someone couldn't access the, the issues. Someone, Prof. Everett, asked to be allowed to see the Q&A. I think you can see it now. Can I share the name of our colleague from Cubes who has written about the Judah approach of the state? Yes, I can. I'll do that right now because I can't pronounce the name properly enough. Okay, so that's an answer to Rebecca's question. Trevor, please comment on the impact of an unequal society on urban governance, in particular in relation to the reality that most of the revenue of the state is only collected from a small percentage of the households, yet the state must serve all the people and redress the wrongs of the past. Thanks, Trevor. Okay, well, Trevor, this should, that's adjunct professor Trevor Fowler, who's uh, the former sitting manager of Joburg, so I'm sure you have a better answer than I. But I'd like to, in great academic style, interrogate the question and not really answer it because, uh, you know, so yes, it's an unequal society. But in a sense, are you arguing that the state should be serving in a better way people that pay for its services and that the state should be underserving those who can't? 
Um, and so that's just interrogating the question. I know you don't think this, but it reminds me of a really interesting anecdote. And it's not a fake anecdote, it's a real one. It's in the county in the States, and I can try to find a name for Kamantha, where fire insurance services were are talked about in a very much pay-by-service kind of way, in the way that I'm obviously correctly characterizing your question. But it's the idea that the only people who deserve to be covered by the service are those that pay for it in a really insurance-like type of way. And so in this particular county, what happens is there's particular segments of society that pay for fire insurance. It was a way of the county government, you know, increasing its revenue. And so what happens is that if there's a fire in a suburb, then the fire brigade you know, a fire truck would go out and cover that house with water and foam and whatever, only if the subscription has been paid up. And so it so happened in in one case, and this is a, a narrative that I'm drawing from um, from Harvard ethics professor. And so it was the question of social justice and ethics. And so it so happened that in one neighborhood, there was a fire that started. And that particular fire was of a house that hadn't had fire insurance. So the question remains whether the fire department would cover it or not. The fire department arrived but didn't put out the fire. And so the the the, the homeowner said, can I take out an insurance now? And they said, sure, you can check, take an insurance now, but it will be for your next fire, not for this one. And then they were questioned about why they're there, why did they arrive? And the answer that was given was, yeah, in case your fire spreads to your neighbor who's insured. And so the question about the unequal society and whether it is we differentiate the level of service between the level of being able to pay for those services, I think is an ethical question. And I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Um, But I think it does speak to why the job of urban governance, the actual nitty-gritty of it, managing it, is quite so difficult. And I don't envy you or people in your position that, you know, that have to navigate those kinds of ideals and we know what it means. So thanks, Trevor. And I think that's others. Do you think culture as a way of life is one of the components in urbanization? If so, why? Yes is the short answer. And, you know, the urbanization has shaped the way we live, right? So how we live is part of our cultural identity. And so not just culture in kind of a traditional cultural sense, but the way urban culture works um, and the way we engage with others and the way we are suburban in our mentality and our ways of engagement, either with the state or with each other. So I think that's also a question for another day. Thank you. And then last question, Manozi, was the COVID pandemic. That's been a challenge in urban governance. I think it's time that we pay more attention to social amenities, especially in informal settlements and townships. And yeah, that's a comment. So thank you for that. And I think, you know, just how well we do or how poorly we do will speak. I mean, it's almost like a, an immediate sense of the narrative and how we manage urban governance and how we're doing by it. It's a kind of, what's the word, hyper-realistic look at how we're doing with it. So it's not just something that will take years to to uncover and unpack. We can actually see it happening all the time. And I think it's it's really important that as scholars and as students that we see those kinds of things. I think I'm going to close there. 
And Kamantha, you want to you want to end and tell people what's coming next? Thank you very much for listening. It seemed a bit weird because I was just kind of talking to myself in this room with the computers. So my son didn't quite think I was working or at a meeting. But thank you so much for showing up and for listening and for engaging. And look forward to hearing your ongoing thoughts and comments. Thank you. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we shall see you next week for Masterclass 3, where we'll be focusing on peace and security uh, with Dr. Erin McCandless. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon and see you next week. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by, by, by the VIS School of Governance. For more information, visit their website on www.wits.ac.za slash WSG.